0: Welcome back, we're gonna continue with our series. Our next speaker is Dr. John Shriver. It is a pleasure to actually have him uh, present today. A quick introduction, Uh, Dr. Shriver has a fantastic CV. I will be speaking for an hour if I were to to actually mention all the accolades that he has. But He did an MPH and MD at Tulane University, and this was followed by a clinical ID fellowship and a research fellowship at Children's Hospital Boston in Harvard Medical School. He is currently the Associate Dean for Research at the Medical College of Wisconsin, and he's our Interim Head of uh, Pediatric ID at Connecticut Children's. Uh, Dr. Shriver has actually uh, been the physician-in-chief at many different children's hospitals, including the Flooring Hospital uh, um, at Tufts Medical Center, and if I'm not mistaken, also University of Minnesota where where I started. John, uh, we're going to actually do the COVID updates. So it's all yours. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Raul, and uh, welcome to uh, Ask the Experts at a different time uh, than we usually do. And I hope we've been able to capture um, our usual audience. Um, And welcome. Uh, There's a lot going on with COVID, uh, much of it good news, but also some sobering issues too. So it's worth us getting our arms around everything today as best we can and then have questions. So I have a little bit longer presentation um, and then we'll have time for questions. Now, in the United States, uh, we've continued our uh, remarkable decline in new cases. We had that moderate resurgence in the early spring and then immunizations really took off. We're below 20,000 new cases per day. Now, 20,000 is still a big number but it's really dropping off and the trajectory is excellent. So this is good news, um, uh, but it's not, you know, the battle's not done yet, but um, we're in the right direction. Next, please. And um, that's that's a duplicate for some reason. I'll let you go to the next one. Yeah, and uh, COVID deaths also in the United States I have dramatically declined, and I think this represents, I'll show you data in a minute, our wild success at immunizing high-risk and elderly. I mean, that is an an American success story. I'll show you the data. But our deaths are down to a few hundred a day. Now, if you're that family, it's still a very important number, and I'd love it to be down to single digits, and I'm optimistic we may get there. Uh, But right now, again, the trajectory in COVID-19 deaths in the United States is excellent. Um, but still a few hundred a day. Next. Now Connecticut, um, also a tremendous success story. Uh, You may remember during April and early May, we were talking about how there was really widespread, widespread, community spread in Connecticut. Now this is much better. I'll show you some more data. And you can see we're down to a very small number of new cases a day in the state. This is absolutely great news and represents tremendous leadership um, by the governor and DPH and the citizens to really embrace the public health measures required uh, for us to get this pandemic behind us in Connecticut and frankly, rest of New England. Uh, So next please. And you'll also see, you may remember two weeks ago, this map I showed you was mostly orange and red. I mean, we had a lot of community spread and we were around 2% test positivity this week most towns uh, most townships in the state are below five new cases per hundred thousand and the test positivity rate is well below one percent an enormous success and shows that community spread has declined across the state to a much more to a manageable level level and uh, again an enormous success rate and actually massachusetts and most of New England um, looks reasonable, similar to this. Next. The Connecticut hospitalizations for COVID also in steep decline. And again, heading to the the uh, very, very low numbers. Uh, now it's around 100 um, and uh, an enormous success rate because as you'll see shortly, our high risk and elderly are essentially fully immunized. Next. Uh, and uh, that was hospitalizations. The death rate single digits now. It it is back where it was last summer, um, an enormous success. So this is this, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly. I keep getting feedback on that, mostly positive. This is the good for sure. Next. Connecticut has remarkable success in immunization. Uh, If you look at uh, significant elderly uh, or mature beyond 75, almost 90% have been gotten at least one dose. I mean, this is remarkable. Uh, if you go 65 and above, it's around 90%. Uh, and this is why our death rate um, and the hospitalizations are way down. But more importantly now, we're doing well with the younger adults, um, 45 and above 82%. And if you measure everyone 12 and above, we're at 70%, which is kind of herd immunity level. So of course, younger children below 12 uh, are not being measured here. Uh, We've administered 4 million doses in the state, 2.2 million first, and 1.7 million second doses. So um, as as you'll see, these are among the best figures in the world actually for immunization in this pandemic. So uh, kudos. Uh, Massachusetts is catching up, doing much better than they were. They had, a, they had a rocky immunization start. And because Massachusetts has 6 million people, it's very important that they get on top of it. And they have a ditto with Vermont, um, New Hampshire, so and Maine actually is getting better. So w- w- New England in general has a very, very good immunization uh, records, but Connecticut's probably the best. Next. Now, we have work to do still in Connecticut, and this is pretty typical across the country. If you look um, at the 12 to 15 age range now, we don't have the percent fully vaccinated on the right. It's zero because we haven't given the second doses yet. We just started doing this. Right. So but you'll see 33 percent have gotten at least one dose in that age group. So we have catch up to do. And, and, and you know, this is where I think having parents more confident, in the vaccine and, and honestly talking about various issues like myocarditis, which we will get to later, um, transparently, I, I think to build confidence in parents in this. Uh, teenagers, we have work to do as well. We're almost at 60%, 16 to 17, 18 to 24 area, around 50% or so. But you can see with young adults, you know, we're in the 50s to low 60s and we have work to do. And, and if we don't get on top of that, we're gonna have propagation a virus still, and and my worry is, as we get into the fall, if we have an unimmunized cohort, we could have a resurgence. So now is the time when community spread is really low to just immunize, get a needle in every arm we can and and get us to a point where if there is a slight resurgence nationally uh, in the fall, it's not relevant to New England or Connecticut. Uh, And then you can see the phenomenal success Uh, If you look at percent fully vaccinated, 65 and above, you know, 85%, and and that's just phenomenal success. Next. There is geographic variation of percent immunized, and this is really important for the state to tackle. The coastline is doing well, but the far eastern part is under immunized, and and, uh, this is an important issue. Uh, And you'll also see we have other under immunized cohorts. I'm going to show you those data and we need to be going all out in our communities to fix it. So there's some geographic variation. Next. And importantly, the disparities in immunization status based on race. Now, this is elderly, 75 and above. Somebody will get mad at me for saying elderly, but I'm elderly, so I get away with it. Um, If you look at this, we're doing okay. It's not great, but you'll see white Connecticut residents around 73% have gotten at least one dose. Um, Now, this, these data are a little old because you're catching up, but if you look at um, non-Hispanic black, it's around 63%, 10% discrepancy, and, um, uh, and and this gets accentuated as you get younger, and uh, Latino um, elderly, almost, uh, almost as good as white elderly in the state, so, so take a look at this, now go to the next slide. And you'll see the disparities really blossom when you get to younger age groups. This is age group 25 to 34. You can see that in a little box on, on my left. And you'll see we have a um, real problem with young adults who are African-American or multiple races in the state are under immunized, much worse than the young, You know, remember I mentioned they were in the 50s, the young adults 60%, but you can see 25, 26%. This is inadequate. It requires immediate attention. And we're going to need to immunize these young adults in whatever community they're in so that we don't have a resurgence in the fall. And, and I think this is it requires attention immediately. Next. And um, this is really accentuated in the 12 to 15 age group. You'll notice I mentioned we have around 35, 40% of these uh, teenagers getting overall, uh, getting uh, immunized. And you'll notice that We're doing particularly poorly with Latino, multiple races, um, uh, non-Hispanic, Native American, and African American, um, the most under immunized. So we're gonna need to roll up our sleeves this summer and take care of this. And and I think the state has generated these data, they're obviously aware, but I want everyone to recognize that our battle in Connecticut's not done. And as long as we, we have an under immunized cohort uh, uh, we're going to have risk. So we, we need to roll up our sleeves and get to work and make these disparities go away for immunizations. Next. Now, uh, remarkably, the United States of America has now administered 295 million doses of vaccine, mostly mRNA vaccines. Um, I, I think, uh, although you watch the news and there's a lot of gloom and doom and they always focus on the outlier people, you know, who are saying weird stuff, but the reality is, you know, this is pretty good. And um, you you see, we've got two to 95 million people have gotten at least uh, a dose. Um, We've got 50% of the entire country's been immunized, um, 40% fully vaccinated. We obviously have work to do. uh, But you know what, this is a nice platform to get going on. And if we can keep rolling up our sleeves over the summer, uh, we'll be in much better shape when the fall hits, which is everyone's worry. So this is an enormous success, a worldwide success for us. You know, we're leading the world in many ways on this. But you'll see that we're going to need to do more than that. Uh, shortly, we're going to need to actually help vaccinate the world, or we will we will suffer the consequences. But right now, I'm um, particularly success all across the United States, immunizing the vulnerable, um, higher age group, high risk, um, fully vaccinated, 75 to 80 percent. Quite a success. <clears throat> Next worldwide pandemic however is continuing and and we need to be conscious of this and one of the challenges I've mentioned before as you watch American news now in the Walter Cronkite area you, you would see international news unless you watch BBC we don't see much and you'll you'll see that particularly hard-hit areas of are South America very relevant to us uh, and uh, and um, in fact, A couple of the countries that have major outbreaks use the Chinese vaccine, which doesn't seem to be working particularly well in the field. So um, there's a swirl in South America, and uh, the EU is getting better, except for a couple of the Scandinavian countries I've mentioned to you. And now there's a resurgence. India is burning itself out with a very severe outbreak, but it's now spilling over to Southeast Asia and Malaysia, Singapore, and other countries like that are getting a second wave. And Africa is getting another wave. So this is not nearly over internationally. And and until it is, we're going to be cranking out new variants that could make our vaccines less relevant. So it is in our interest, both for humanitarian reasons and selfish reasons, to roll up our sleeves and get going on trying to immunize the rest of the world with effective vaccines, which we have. Next um, the immunization rates across the world are improving and you'll see the US is doing very well with that. Um, the EU is better, uh, but you'll see Africa, um, uh, South America, particularly because as I mentioned, I think some of the vaccines they've used are not effective. Um, and uh, you'll see some hotspots in Vietnam and that area now where there's, there's not much immunization. So we have lots of we have lots of work to do, and uh, until the world collectively rolls up its sleeves to immunize with effective vaccines all across the world and pay for it, we're going to continue to have outbreaks that could uh, render new outbreaks in the United States and other highly immunized countries. Next. Top countries for immunizations, um, a fascinating list, led by the UAE and Israel, who have immunized most of their people. This is already out of date. Uh, Very interesting, Uh, and is right up there. Uh, And a couple of other countries are highly immunized. As I mentioned, Uruguay, for example, there's a big outbreak there, and it was mostly Sinovac, which is the um, inactivated whole virus vaccine. It doesn't seem to be working in the field well. And the United States, uh, again, with half our population, Getting at least one dose. So uh, this is the this is the star list. Next. Um, now I want to talk about breakthrough infections. This is very important data. This was an MMWR uh, just last week, and I want to run through this and then th- the salient points for us. So first of all, breakthrough infections after being immunized are really rare. So we've immunized hundreds of millions now, right, in the United States. The CDC has. Uh, Documented 10,260 through vaccine breakthrough infections. Now it's probably more than that. But even if it's twice that, with millions of, of immunizations, it's a very low vaccine failure rate, extremely low. And it probably represents, you know, that 95% efficacy. There's 5% people who don't respond. And so it probably represents that. But there's some very interesting data here. First off, the median age for breakthrough is 58. So this is not in young people. This is in people moving to the high-risk age range. And um, you can see that 27% of the vaccine breakthrough infections were asymptomatic, but 10% were hospitalized and 160 patients died of COVID related illnesses who were vaccinated. Out of those people, they're mostly elderly. Uh, Median age of patients who died was 82. So that's telling you the elderly are probably not responding with the neutralizing titers that younger people are and we need to be cautious you know, it's probably not time for very vulnerable aged uh, individuals who've been vaccinated to go to the pub and take their mask off because there is a failure rate that's very, very small, but that seems to be accentuated in that age group. So I urge you go on MMWR and read this because it allows us to inform our parents and patients and others, it's really rare. So my, my uh, summary, breakthrough infections, post-immunizations are really rare, only 10% of the breakthrough infections were hospitalized. There's a very small death rate, mostly in those who are aged. And more importantly, you'll notice here also, they were able to to, um, genotype the COVID and the breakthroughs in most of them, and they're mostly variants, and uh, which is very important for us to understand. So it's B117, which is the UK variant, which is all over the United States now. I'm not sure that's an issue. That would have happened anyway, but you'll see, that there's other variants here that represent some of the breakthroughs and it is possible. Remember, I've showed you over the months that our neutralizing antibody titers for some of the breakthroughs are a little bit lower with the mRNA vaccines and the elderly that might be accentuated. So very important data um, to inform our patients, parents, and others, and us. Very rare, but it is happening. Next summer camps uh, you're, we're all getting these kind of questions these are the new CDC um, suggestions i think they're very reasonable actually if you are unvaccinated or it's a mixture of unvaccinated and vaccinated in a camp wear masks indoors and wear masks outdoors when crowded or in close contact pretty simple uh, they say don't children under the age of two don't wear masks but you know some kids at age are more than able to but they're recommending that it's okay don't but so it's, these hybrid models are going to require masks. Next. However, some, are, some camps are requiring immunization. And in that scenario, if everyone's vaccinated, we're essentially back to normal in that camp. Fully vaccinated camps, uh, full capacity, no masking, no physical distancing in or out, unless there's are state or federal or other laws that require it. So I I think if we can move to this place, and this is where I I, I get puzzled by some of our um, vaccine hesitancy uh, pundits on media, if we could move to this model, we'd get back to normal. And doesn't everyone want to go back to normal? So uh, again, um, very nice news for summer camps uh, this summer, and um, hopefully we can advise accordingly. Next. Now, I do wanna talk about duration of immunity. So now a lot of the questions I'm getting now, I've been vaccinated or I had it, how long am I gonna be immune? So we're starting to get some good data on this. Now remember, immunization data is less because we've only been keeping the vaccine for about six months, right? Seven months. So we know it lasts for seven months. We don't know how much longer after that. Um, We're looking at some of the original cohorts and the data is coming out for vaccination. This is after infection. And you'll see what's been very, very uh, important. So SARS-CoV-2-S are antibodies against the spike protein. Those dots in the middle there, you can see um, they're blue, purple, orange dots. Those represent plasma cells that make antibody that are memory cells that are specific for the spike protein. So, and this is months out. Um, This is eight, nine, 10 months out. So there are memory cells in the bone marrow that can remember the spike protein for months after natural infection. So you're gonna be protected most likely. Next. And um, anti-spike proteins now have been measured for months after natural infection with covid 2 And you'll see here that there's fall off. So that's B, that's the log dilution, which you have neutralizing antibody. And there's fall-off spike protein antibody. There's fall-off over 300 days. Those are the days, but you still, most people, not all, but most people still have antibody at 300 days. So some people become non immune but most stay immune. And you can see a comparison to flu vaccine, you know, where where people uh, over 300 days tend to have antibodies. Trouble is with flu is the the virus mutates. We're starting to have the same problem with SARS-CoV-2. So this fall-off, depending on the variant, might be relevant. We don't know. So again, good news, overall, natural infection, you have antibodies for months and you have memory cells for months. We will get immunization data of this kind shortly and I'll share it with you when we get it. Next. Now, other important antibodies, remember we're talking about spike protein um, and this has come up with some of our myocarditis cases. And I just wanna review it for you. Remember, if you get immunized, It's only mRNA for the spike protein. So you're making spike protein, which is S in these graphs here. And again, this is showing a duration over 100 days of antibodies to nucleocapsid and spike protein, which is S1 and S2. Nucleocapsid is another piece of the virus. And most people make antibodies to it if you're infected. So if you have nucleocapsid antibodies, it's not from the vaccine. It's because you were infected. And this is very important We try to differentiate any side effects from vaccine or side effects from natural infection or vaccine plus natural infection. So I wanted all of you to be aware. In general, we're measuring two types of antibodies, nucleocapsid, which comes from a natural infection and spike protein from natural infection and spike protein from immunization. Both of them will be present in natural infection, but not after immunization. Next. Now, what level is protective? We're getting really close to figuring this out. These are neutralizing antibody levels um, after infection and determining at what point are you protected. So protective efficacy up to 100% on the left and neutralization titers on the right. And pretty much where that blue circle is, is the sweet spot of what titer of neutralization antibodies you need. Um, And this is fourfold. Uh, of convalescent uh, neutralizing antibodies and gives almost 100% protection from clinical disease. So I do think in the coming months, we'll actually have some correlate of immunity based on neutralizing antibodies to this virus. We'll be able to figure out exactly what titer means you're immune. So we're getting to some good new data here that's gonna help very much. Next. Now, um, in addition, I've mentioned a couple of times before, and there's always this, this concern that if you've been infected, you get two doses of the mRNA vaccines. Maybe your response or your sore arm is worse. Could it you know, cause any problems? In this study, uh, which again is um, pretty new uh, within the last week or so, they found that one dose of mRNA vaccine gives you a pretty good titer if you've been previously infected that's similar to have gotten two doses of uninfected. So if you go to the next slide, you'll see here, uh, are we stuck or can we go to the next slide? There we go. And this is really good news. So if you look at um, baseline, um, that shows you the IgG, the spike protein made by individuals with no previous infection who are the green people. And then the purple on the far left are people who were infected and they have some antibody. Now, in the middle graph where the blue arrow, first blue arrow comes down, you'll see that purple people who are the ones previously infected, if you give them one dose of vaccine, it's really similar to the green dots on the far right, my right, who got two doses. So if you've been previously infected, one dose of an mRNA vaccine gives you a titer of neutralizing antibody or antibody to the spike protein that's really the same as you would get as an uninfected person with two doses of the mRNA vaccine. So it's my hope at some point that if you've been prior infected, you're only gonna need one dose of mRNA vaccine. And I think this also tells you that likely booster doses will only be a single dose because again, you get such a brisk response if there's previous immune memory uh, to the spike protein. So good news. And again, informing us of how we're gonna perhaps vaccinate in the future. Next. Now, Novavax, um, you've heard uh, the Novavax vaccine is recombinant spike protein, has no mRNA, it's different, it's the old fashioned hepatitis B technology where you crank it in vats of E. coli or whatever cell lines they're using, insect cells that crank out the protein, they've been genetically injured, to crank out the protein. This vaccine I think is gonna be licensed shortly and it has pretty good efficacy, not as good as the mRNA vaccines, but pretty close. In this study, We're looking at the South African variant, the B1351 variant, which is the one that's caused some neutralization antibody declines for vaccines. And you'll see that the Novavax vaccine is still much better than placebo. Um, In in infection, this is from South Africa, and uh, HIV negative participants, you look on the right, the Novavax vaccine was still 50% protective against that strain, 1351, and much better than placebo in terms of preventing disease. Uh, And then in all participants, which includes some HIV infected, it also had 50 to 60% efficacy. So the Nova vaccine is probably gonna be okay for variants, perhaps not quite as good as the mRNA vaccines. Next, but importantly, the um, UK AstraZeneca adenovirus vaccine, which we've been hearing a lot about is ineffective against the B1351 variant. This is new data. And I wanna show you to the far right um, in in patients who had the 1351 variant, you had around 21% efficacy or 10% efficacy in prevention of mild to moderate illness two weeks after the second injection of the AstraZeneca vaccine. And um, so these are inferior protective efficacies And on the bottom there, they used historic controls before 1351 was around, and the AstraZeneca vaccine was 75% effective. And those are the data we all heard about. It's 75% effective, quite good, but it's not effective against the South African variant. And in my my opinion, I don't think the AstraZeneca vaccine is going to be uh, worldwide practical. I don't see this vaccine surviving as a major player. Next. How do kids do after Missy? We're starting to get data. This is a very small study just published last week in Lancet where they followed Missy kids for six months in the UK and and just see how they did. It was retrospective. So it's not prospective, but it was 46 children with Missy. And they found um, by six months, the inflammation was completely resolved in everybody but one patient. And almost all the patients had a normal echo six months out. And there was minimal functional impairment. So they concluded that the vast majority of, ch- of children, at least in the six month follow up, recover completely from MISI. Again, great news. Uh, all of us are worried about long term functional impairments, but at least these early data suggest that's not going to happen for most kids. So, very good news um, coming from Lancet in the UK. Next. Now, myocarditis, I've had a number of um, requests to sort of dive into this again. Uh, By the way, I I don't have it here, but there's a paper that just came out yesterday, I think, in pediatrics, collecting uh, seven or eight cases of myocarditis right after the second dose of an mRNA vaccine. And they looked for nucleocapsid antibody and it was not present in six of the seven. So it probably wasn't a previous infection. However, what they didn't do was look for any other viruses. So, you know, whether there was Coxsackie in the community or circulating, we just don't know. So again, um, no causation yet, but this is the DPH bulletin from Connecticut. And actually there's another one from Wisconsin that's quite similar. And, And I think this really sums it up well. So since April, there've been a number of myocarditis, pericarditis cases reported in the United States after the mRNA vaccines, usually the second dose and they've been reported into VARES, the uh, vaccine um, monitoring system. To date, however, it's not above background myocarditis. If you look, we know those background numbers, and it's not above that background yet. So we're, it needs to be watched really carefully. Um, and if a adolescent um, or anyone really after the second dose or any dose of the mRNA vaccine has chest pain or any indication of myocarditis or pericarditis symptoms, they need to be treated very seriously and obviously require medical care. And that needs to be reported to the CDC VAERS, uh, adverse outcome site. Very important because we need to understand exactly who's getting this. Most of the cases are in male adolescents around 16 of age, a little bit older, Usually it's a few days after the second dose of the mRNA vaccine. So the recommendation is, since we don't know causality yet, and even if we did, the numbers are so small and um, the outcomes are resolved. Most of these patients have gotten better and and done very well. It's been mild disease. uh, It's to continue immunizing immunizing this age group. Um, As you read that pediatrics article, if you do, They say we did not look for other viruses or causes of myocarditis until we figure that out and make sure we're not having outbreaks of other viruses that we know cause myocarditis. We've gotta be very careful to not say the vaccine causes this yet. If it does, let's say it, but right now we don't know, very important. So this is what we know. Uh, I wanted to share it with you. And again, I think it's important that we be transparent uh, with all of our patients about this. No causality. We're looking at it very carefully. Um, No causality proved yet. There's timing that's associated with the second dose often uh, in a small number of cases, and we're gonna try to figure it out in the coming months. Next. Um, Moderna has now announced that their vaccine data show um, prevention of infection in the adolescent age group, 12 to 17, so you know they're gonna apply for emergency use authorization from the FDA for the Moderna vaccine, which will be wonderful to give us a second vaccine we can use in that age group. Here are the data though. So again, we need to be, as we look at people, this is what we know. 3,000 children, almost 4,000 children, age 12 to 17 got vaccine or placebo. There were no cases of clinical COVID in the vaccine cohort, four cases in the placebo cohort. The vaccine efficacy was 100% in preventing clinical disease. 93% to prevent any positive PCR in that age group. So highly, highly protective. The adverse events, uh, the list, if you look at it, it's sore arm, site injection pain, myalgias, headache, fatigue. Um, They did not report any myocarditis. Um, But again, I don't, you know, I have to, we have to dig down and look hard on that. Right now, I didn't see any. And Moderna is applying for use in age 12 to 17. So We're gonna have a second vaccine uh, over the summer, I think, for this age group, which will be welcoming. The storage of the Moderna vaccine is easier, so next. Public attitude for immunizations, Um, fascinating. I wanted to, you know, this is a new, there are a lot of these surveys, but this is a new um, poll. And it varies really widely by, by demographics. And I look on this as our opportunity to get all of our demographics to embrace immunization so we can move back to normal, a more normal state in the United States and protect ourselves in the coming fall and winter as new variants may come into the country. So I think um, if you look totally around 66, 70% of the public said they would get a vaccine or already got it as soon as possible. I I just did that one. in the 1829 age group, it's 50% maybe, and in the elderly, older age groups, most people get it um, and don't want to get this, this virus. Now we run into challenges, however, African-Americans, it dips to 60%, Republicans, 50%, independents, 61%, Democrats, 88%, rural, 60%, urban, 71%. So, This helps guide us to understand. Maybe this is why Northeast Connecticut, you know, we don't have as good penetration for immunization. And I look on this as an opportunity to understand each constituent's concerns and try to address it so that we can increase these numbers for all of our demographics. But I thought that was important to share. Next. Now, um, unfortunately, in the middle of all this, as we're struggling to get some of our age groups immunized in this country, there are active efforts to disrupt immunization. Now this website is the National Vaccine Information Center. It looks just so professional. You think it's coming from the CDC. It's not, um, it's a vaccination information center that their, their hypothesis and thesis and passion is that no vaccine is mandatory, it's your choice. Um, And uh, all this kerfuffle about immunizations uh, really needs to be tempered by personal choice. Now, I think it sounds great when you hear that the problem is, if it's everyone's personal choice, then we have whooping cough, smallpox, you know, we have everything all over the place and and smallpox is eradicated. But had we gone polio, I mean, you know, we'll have outbreaks again. And so I think it's it's deceptive in it's professionalism. Let me read you when you dig down this week, I dug down. This is a major story. Big Pharma pays big tech billions of dollars for ads and censorship campaigns. If you are searching for relief from the hype by tuning off the TV and turning on your computer, you will be disappointed. The COVID vaccine ad campaign is in high gear online, especially on social media platforms. The thought police hired by big tech to censor information that does not conform with pre-approved pandemic narratives, are making sure you do not have an opportunity to carefully weigh the vaccine's benefits and risks. So, you know, if I read that and and I'm not medical, I'm going to say, wow, you know, uh, bad. Once again, bad companies are trying to manipulate a situation, and it's dangerous. I'm, you know, my head's going to spin. And I think you know the reality is you've seen these talks for months. I mean, we present the data and public health initiatives, and the data show the vaccine's working, we're able to get back to normal, less people are dying. And last I looked, you know, big pharma's not telling me to say this, I'm looking at every data, every FDA presentation, look at the data. So unfortunately, lots of people read this and it creates that hesitancy that we are worried about. And next, and then you have more aggressive, I I love sharing this website with you, the next slide, Uh, This is InfoWars. You got to read this website. Uh, May 31st. This is this week's story. Heart inflammation, blood clots, and other dangerous side effects occur from COVID-19 vaccines, says study. And then you read under it, experimental mRNA injections that use the COVID spike protein present severe cardiovascular health risks, according to peer-reviewed studies. Now, you just saw the peer-reviewed study. I showed you about seven children with myocarditis in pediatrics, where they admit they don't know there's any cause. They just talk about it. So um, this is how you spin papers coming out in ways that frighten people and create hesitancy. And this is obviously partially correct, right? Partially correct, but not factual. So very important. So the COVID vaccine is not experimental. It's been given to millions of people, now 200 million Americans, And before that, RNA vaccines had a 10-year track record in human studies. And there are some rare events. You know, you saw with one of the other adenovirus vaccines, one in a million got a clot. But they inflate these rare events as vaccine-linked, use the words peer-reviewed to indicate scientific sophistication, but present erroneous information that is designed to frighten. So unfortunately, we all as providers and everyone out there, whether you're a nurse, parent, physician, whoever we are, we, we need to understand this is a lot of stuff that people are reading. And we have to be measured, non-judgmental, and factual as we try to guide people back to what we know and not what is fantasy. Next. Finally, um, America's America, right? And um, some states are using very innovative ways to get vaccine buy-in. And I was interviewed on this yesterday, and they, oh, aren't you worried about giving out presents to get And I said, you know, it's America, man. So in West Virginia, they're going to get, they have a lottery, and you can get a hunting rifle, uh, F-150 pickup truck, or cash, $100 cash. If you're an adolescent, and you get immunized, you get $100 and you stay in West Virginia. And, you know, why not, right? We have lotteries, we do what we do in this country. And West Virginia started out really strong with immunizations, but it's falling off. And if they can make it fun and get people out there and get that needle in their arm, I don't really care how you do it. Um, so that's my attitude about this. I was asked, and yeah, you, know, you have to laugh. It's America, right? We like lotteries. We like to get stuff for free. And this is this is honing in. And by the way, since they did this, a lot more people got immunized in West Virginia. It's working. Everybody wants to win a pickup truck or, or a, a shotgun uh, for hunting season. So why not? Okay. Next so the good, the bad, the ugly. Year two, a lot of good this week. The infections and deaths in the United States are rapidly declining. Now, it's still fifteen to 20,000 new cases a day, but it's really great trajectory. We've immunized half our population. We've got to get better than that, but it's a great start. Fantastic. Millions and millions of people have been immunized. And Connecticut has immunization levels among the best in the world. And our community spread has declined to the point where there isn't much. It's just a wild success. Um, ditto in the rest of New England and others, There are a few other states uh, with similar successes. But the bad, large sections of the U.S. are under immunized, particularly the southeast and some of the upper west. And vaccine hesitancy nurtured by some of the media is impeding our full immunization. So that's the bad. The ugly is that the worldwide pandemic is continuing, especially in parts of Southeast Asia and South America and a couple of countries in the EU. It is imperative that effective immunization rates increase. And that's going to probably need to be the mRNA vaccines right now, which appear to be the best. And we're going to need to get those vaccines out to the rest of the world. We're just going to have to do it. So uh, and that's going to be a heavy lift uh, in the coming months. So again, thank you uh, as always for your attention. I look forward to your questions. Um, I was looking forward to the day where most of our talk topics would be good. And I actually think we've reached that day. So thank you for your attention today.
0: John, I think that we do have a few questions in the chat. So I'm not sure if you wanna take on those.
1: Um, Certainly. uh, Do you want to read them for everyone? Sometimes I I, I think that's more effective. If you're willing to do that, would you you be willing? Maybe you didn't hear me. So um, I'll start reading them then. Uh, What is the statistic in immunized populations in the U.S. of serious disease, hospitalizations, and death from COVID? So I showed you that. It's extremely low. So there's only been, out of 200 million people immunized, 10,000 reported breakthrough infections. And I showed you 260 deaths from that and a very small number hospitalized. So I, I don't know, do the statistic, you guys do the math, 10,000 out of a couple hundred million. So it's very, very small. Uh, next, in the past, they said wear a mask to protect others. Now it looks like unvaccinated people wear masks to protect themselves. Do vaccinated people wear masks protect the unvaccinated? Well. Vaccinated people are very low risk for transmission. It's not zero, but since very few people are having breakthrough infections, your likelihood of infecting an unvaccinated is low, but not zero. Um, I, this is what I'm doing now. So I, I just, so outside ventilation is good, it's warm. You know, unless I'm in a big crowd at a fair, which I haven't gone to yet, um, I'm not wearing a mask in general. And I'm just chit-chatting with people outside where there's not a huge crowd. I think if there's a huge crowd where I can't control my distance from someone, I might wear a mask. Indoors, I'm still wearing a mask. And I'm wearing a mask for two reasons. You know, one, I don't want to be the small, per- the small number of people who might transmit, but it's very low. But, you know, honestly, I don't want to. I'm six months out from immunization. I've been following the data. I'm probably still protected probably for a year. I think those data are going to come out. It looks like it's going to be around a year, but I probably don't want to test that with an active case coughing in my face. So, um, you know, just as in the hospital, I'm going to wear a mask if I see a patient. When I go into the big Y and it's crowded, I'm wearing a mask still. So I'm giving you my thoughts as to why. I'm wearing a mask with the low likelihood I could transmit, but I'm also wearing a mask to protect myself from vaccine breakthrough and the low likelihood of that. Neither are, neither are likely. They're both low. Um, Next, uh, with the return of international students to stateside campuses, which Chinese vaccines are considered to be effective and acceptable for students? Now, I don't know what the CDC has said about that. Um, It's a great question. Um, You're probably going to need to accept any vaccine they've gotten. And remember, they are effective. They're just not as good as the mRNA vaccines. There is protection. I don't know how long. And remember, the data from the Sinovac wasn't presented. I mean, we really haven't seen those kind of um, studies that we've seen the FDA requires here. So I, I don't know what those data are and I don't know what the CDC is gonna recommend for this. So I think let's look on, let's see what the CDC in the coming weeks suggests for that. But right now I think you're gonna be accepting, I am um, I'm immunized looking at the card and accepting the vaccine that they got. now. If it comes to a point where we've decided reviewing the data that they have to be immunized in the United States and it has to be our vaccine, maybe we'll get there, but I don't think we're there yet. Um, in case the CDC has changed that, the caveat is I haven't looked at that particular site for this question in like the last three days. So um, something we need to look at. Current recommendations for PPE use in an office where all pediatricians and staff have been completely vaccinated with mRNA vaccine. I'd like to refer you to our new PPE guidelines that Dr. Spink and her committee at Connecticut Children's have made, which I think are really reasonable and probably could apply um, to the office setting. And so I'll ask Elizabeth and Nicole to post that. It's a nice chart, kind of shows you high risk, low risk, if you're vaccinated or unvaccinated, what your PPE should be. I think it's pretty reasonable. So uh, take a look at that. And if there are more questions, um, circle back to us. What's your recommendation for COVID testing in children who are sick? We're seeing lots of sick kids with GI or cold symptoms and schools are requesting us to confirm they can go back to school. So, you know, I I think um, community spread has dropped but it's not zero yet. So right now you're sort of stuck if they're in a situation where the school needs to know if they're COVID negative or positive because of various policies, you're gonna need to test them still. Um, I, no question, I anticipate hopefully over the coming weeks that um, as other viruses we identify and we know are circulating in the community, we can be more discriminating. Um, For example, I know there's a gastroenteritis going around and we have one case of RSV, there may be more. I mean, there's stuff circulating now. So, and you know, it's going to get worse because we're no longer wearing masks all the time and we're touching family members and things like that. So we're going to have Common pediatric illnesses again, and everyone's gonna, you know, wow. But it's a good thing, right? It means COVID is fading and personal, interpersonal normalcy is getting better. But for right now, um, with respiratory illness in particular, I, I would probably still test because if they're going to return back to the school and you send a COVID positive back, that would not be good. So for right now, if it's suspicious of COVID, I would still do a COVID test. Um, Moderna vaccine and three week delay DVTP. Um, I'm not sure what that question is. Okay, here it is. Frequent airplane traveler took flight three weeks after Moderna 2, thrombocytopenia after Moderna 1 and 2. So I don't know that particular story. Um, As you're aware, the thrombocytopenia and clot was reported with the adenovirus, J&J and AstraZeneca vaccines which are very different than the mRNA vaccines. I've seen a couple of very rare reports of this post mRNA vaccines, but it was way below even what you'd expect that happens normally across the population. So um, if, there's, if there's more specifics on that, um, don't hesitate to ask me, but I'm not exactly sure what you're asking there. I think it's extremely uncommon with the mRNA vaccines, but like anything, you're gonna see background cases um, and causality um, unclear. All right, Um, that seems to be, let's see, are there more questions? That seems to be the most of the questions are are there any others coming up or am I missing any? Dr. Schreiber, it looks like one more just came in. Okay, here we go. you may have mentioned this. I was not able to listen to the priest. any idea when school-age children will be able to be vaccinated. So um, as I mentioned, so Moderna is going to be applying shortly. I don't know the dates of the FDA hearings yet. Um, they may have been announced, but I haven't seen them, uh, for 12 and above. So I think their data look pretty good. I'm, I'm pretty confident they'll be licensed to or emergency use authorization for 12 and above for Moderna. The studies in kids down to six months are ongoing currently. I've not seen any preliminary data or data from that yet. I anticipate by September we probably will start seeing those data. So I'm optimistic by the end of the year um, or early 2022 that we'll have vaccines available for the younger age groups. Um, But I'm I'm going on. Uh, just what I know so far, that those months could be different, could be earlier, could be later, but the, the studies are happening. The clinical studies are active right now, and actually Novavax also is looking at younger age groups. We may very well have three vaccines available uh, for the younger age groups uh, come late fall, winter, or, or early 2022. Um, do you think it's likelihood uh, likely that Moderna and Pfizer uh, may wait to go for full licensure over EUA for younger kids? I don't know the answer. I know that um, they're going to apply for formal license move away from the emergency use for the vaccines. My bet would be probably 12 and above pretty soon. Um, and I'll, I'll go on out on a limb too. I bet you by the summer, the vaccines are no longer emergency use. They're just standard vaccines. Um, but for the younger kids, uh, that always takes more time. Um, you know, you have to follow it farther out and, and look carefully. And so, you know, again, I'm going out on a limb. I'll bet you for the younger kids, um, I don't know when full licensure would be. It's, I think that's going to be more delayed. Um, you need more data. Um, with 33 million people that got COVID plus, those who had it but were not diagnosed, including those who've been vaccinated, vaccinated people what is the percentage of the population is considered to be immune? I don't know, you know, we don't know the numbers because as you said, many were silent. I'll bet you one of the reasons we're doing better in this country is that between those people who were infected, uh, maybe didn't know it or did know it, and between the 50% that have now gotten one dose of vaccine we're probably teetering on some sort of herd immunity place, not across all geographies, but overall. So. I agree with the what you're asking here, I just don't know the numbers, but I, I would say probably we're between the two of immunization and those who are silently or otherwise infected, in some areas we're probably teetering on some sort of herd immunity now. so which is good news. Um, although you, again, I go back to, well let's just why didn't we just let it burn through the population and get herd immunity with everyone being infected? And it sounds great, except that the hospitals would have been overwhelmed, every ICU bed filled for months and a couple million people would have died. So you know that's you know again we've saved a couple million lives just you can just do the trajectory had we done nothing, um, and uh, and and the overwhelming the medical system and to me that's a price a priceless uh, to have saved that many people with immunization so that's kind of where we are with it. Um, any other questions comments? A couple trickled in. That seems to be about it, Raul.
0: Thank you john that was a fantastic talk as usual and i want to actually like do some closing remarks i want to i want to thank all the speakers for joining us today just as a reminder this symposium is a biannual symposium so we will have another one uh this winter in november so please be in the lookout for that invitation uh pre-register is possible so we have an idea how many people want to actually join us i hope that you do enjoy And uh, with that said, I will actually conclude by actually thanking the CME team for putting this together. Thank you all. And I appreciate it. See you in November.